1: Good day. Welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on New Books Network. My name is Charles Cotillo of the Royal Historical Society. I am a host on the channel. And today I'm pleased and honored to have with us Professor Julian Jackson. Professor Jackson is a professor in the Department of History at Queen Mary College at the University of London. He is the author of a good number of well-received books on modern French history and is a winner of the Wolfson Prize. Anne has just received the book prize from the American Library in France, and we will speak today about that particular book titled *De Gaulle*. Welcome, Professor Jackson.
0: Thank you very much, uh,
1: Professor. What made you write this book?
0: Well, um, I've, as you said in, a, as you, in your uh, kind introduction, I've I've been working um, on his French history all my life, really, and I've done books about. Many aspects of French history from the 30s, um, and, and quite a lot on the occupation, on the fall of France, on 1968. <clears throat> and so I suppose anybody who works on the 20th century in France, as I have, the one person who is, to use the uh, French word, Anconte uh, Incontournable, that means a person you simply can't avoid. He's there wherever you look, is Charles de Gaulle. He is the the dominant figure of 20th century French political history, not just political history. So um, he's been one of those people I've always felt I wanted to um, deal with. And I wrote a little biography of him a good 10 years ago or so, but I knew I wanted to do something more substantial. So that's really the first reason. Uh the second reason is that um he's uh, in the, uh, that um about uh, a few years ago at least, um De Gaulle's archives became open to the public. They they were given after his death to the French National Archives, but then they weren't catalogued, they weren't open, and they became fully open to researchers over the last few years. And so I thought that it would be also an opportunity to revisit him using these archives, which um, some of which people, um, s- s- not everything in them is new, but they are the first chance to fully go through the De Gaulle archives. And I suppose thirdly, um, he's, he remains really a, a, a person of great um, contemporary influence, uh, interest uh, and to at some point influence. So if you just want to take the um, perspective of a British historian like myself, um, we, as you know, have, have just voted to, in a referendum two years ago to leave the European community, Brexit and so on. And the goal famously vetoed British application to the what was then the common market so he's very much in the news as well and um, this is also the 60th anniversary in France of the constitution that he created in 1958 so there lots of those i think would be the primary main reasons
1: please describe a little bit de gaulle's family background and how it influenced his future political views
0: well he was um a person actually from a from a very conservative um very conventional background he was born in eighteen ninety and uh, so he came from a from a um uh, uh a sort of minor aristocratic quite background um his father was or his parents were only in a lukewarm way. Uh, Republicans, that is to say, supporters of the republic, as opposed to monarchists. So, when he in the 1890s in France, monarchism, um, nostalgia for the monarchy, was still quite um, was certainly quite prevalent, and so he came from this this slightly slightly conservative um, family, a bit at odds with France as it had become in the late 19th century which is partly, I think, why he went into the um, army, why he decided to become a soldier, because it was a way of serving the nation, serving the country, without necessarily having to um, uh, implicate yourself in the politics of a regime that his own family didn't hugely admire. So he was a conservative. There's no doubt about that. Um, And he very much... Had an idea that France needed a strong state, and although he was a pragmatic individual, so he quickly realized um, as a young man that there's no point in going back to the monarchy. the idea that France needed a strong state was very strong the anchored i think in his in his um youth but then I think even more important, he was born only twenty years after the terrible defeat of France in the Franco-Prussian War in 1870-1871 and it was very much uh, still very much scarred families of his generation so he was brought up in an extraordinarily uh, patriotic um, one might even say nationalistic uh, family at a time also when he was by the time he was 15 that's 1905 there was quite a strong, what historians have called, a nationalist revival in France—a sense of, you know, new uh, sort of return to the values of nation, church, army, that kind of thing—and so he was very much influenced by that. And I think the one, if there's one thing that everybody needs to know about the goal, and it's actually the the, the title of my book, um, is that he always he had, as he said in the first page of his war memoirs a certain idea of france which is almost like a kind of almost like a mystical romantic idea of france france had to be a great nation had to be um, in the front rank that was another phrase that he used quite a lot so i think he inherited both those ideas the idea of a need for a strong state but even more the idea of france as um uh, a, a nation that had a world role to play. Another of his key words was uh, grandeur, greatness. So I think those are the things that he takes from his background and his early days and his family.
1: What influence if any um, did uh, the views of uh, Charles Maras have on de Gaulle?
0: Well that's a, a massively uh, complicated uh, and, and still. Sort of uh, quite controversial question, because Morrat as you as you know was a was um, a, very much an extreme right reactionary figure who was who at the time of that big conflict in late nineteenth century France the Dreyfus affair um, was uh, where this soldier um, where this this Jewish soldier was accused of espionage which divided France between left and right. And Morras was very much on the right, anti-Dreyfus, anti-Semitic, in fact, um, wanting a return to order, stability, the ar- army, and so on. And there's no doubt that de Gaulle's parents, his father, like any conservative of the time, was influenced by or read um, the ideas of Morras. Um, and I think there's there's no doubt that um uh they must have had a uh, they they were part of the world in which de Gaulle grew up what's curious is he doesn't very much ever mention moras in his in his um uh, hardly ever mentions moras in fact in his notebooks or his letters it's very surprising and I think actually he was more influenced by another nationalist of the same period a little bit older but they were semi contemporaries Someone called um, Maurice Barres. And the difference between, they were both nationalists, Barres and Moras, they both believed in, they were both actually anti Semitic, which I don't think De Gaulle ever really was, actually, um, unusually for his generation. But the difference between Barres and Moras is that Moras really was a classic reactionary. He wanted to pretend that 150 years of French history had um, the the, the revolution. Everything that happened since the revolution of 1789 was everything that had gone wrong with France. He wanted to turn the clock back. Uh, He wanted, uh, perhaps it was a fantasy, but he wanted to reestablish the monarchy order and that kind of thing. Whereas Barrès, who shared Morass' nationalism, had a much more, what you could call, um, ecumenical, inclusive view of the nation. Barres said, right, we've had the revolution, we can't pretend it didn't happen, we've got to, as it were, take on board all that's happened in France, uh, in both the kings, but both the revolution, both uh, the republic and the monarchy. And so I think that if you wanted to find uh, an influence, it would be much more a Barres, who de Gaulle quoted a, a lot, who had this more um, inclusive, is the word I'd use, vision of what it was to be French, what it was, at, what France should be. So I would, like most historians, downplay the influence of Morras and definitely stress the influence of this other figure of the same sort of period. Baresse.
1: did uh, de Gaulle have a good war as it were during the Great War, and how did his war experiences influence him in the future
0: well he had a um, he had a disappointing war from his point of view, which is to say that, like so many young um, nationalists of his generation he was uh, he welcomed the war it wasn 't just in france they, he welcomed the war as a chance, well, to, for revenge over Germany for 1870, and so he, he was, for him, it was the moment that he'd been waiting for as a young man, and he was, uh, out, but um, he uh, was wounded, so he was, he, within the first day of action, literally, at the bridge at Dino over the river Meuse, um, he was wounded, and um, I think he had, sort of, no more than, uh, 5 minutes before he was quite badly wounded and so was out of action for a few months then he was back at the front in the trenches then he was wounded again not too badly in um 1915 then he was back at the front again at the battle of Verdun which is obviously the biggest of battles for the French in the first world war and he um uh was he was kept, he was made prisoner he was captured at Verdun on about the, the about a week into the battle and so to his eternal regret he spent the second half of the war or the period from march 1916 to the end of the first world war as a prisoner of war and he tried he tried again and again to escape there were seven quite serious escape attempts but well partly he was a very he was not a he was not an inconspicuous person and partly it was just very difficult it was easy it wasn't so difficult to escape from a camp but it was difficult actually to, to sustain it as to get to the frontier to get out actually to get back to um to remain it at, at um at large so each time he was picked up so the end of the war was a bit of disappointment for him in the sense that it was what he all his life up to then wanted which was the victory of france but then there was also this sense of real sadness and he talks in a letter about that for the rest of his life the War will be the end of the war. Will be a, a mixed feelings of of, of um, obviously uh, glory, but also deep deep disappointment that he hadn't been able, through no fault of his own, to take a bigger part in it. And also it sets back his promotion because he ends the war a captain, because for the second two years of the war he's a prisoner of war. So I think it possibly um, it, it it sharpens. His ambition, there's a great sense in the interwar years of um, wanting to make up for lost time. He he says quite explicitly that everything I do is going to be, I've got to make my mark. I've got to um, redeem myself. And there was a sense, I wouldn't say his guilt, he he didn't feel guilt, it wasn't his fault. But there was a sense of of disappointment, which I think sharpens that sense of a burning ambition To save, to serve France and to uh, make up for lost time.
1: What type of personality did De Gaulle have? Was he, in the words of uh, Pierre Mendes France, timid, in the French meaning of that word?
0: Yeah, in the French meaning of that word, totally, uh, because the French, uh, just so so listeners know, uh, that the word um, timid, uh, because de Gaulle was uh, certainly not a timid person in our sense of the word, but he was timide in the French sense of the word. That's to say, I think he was, um, uh, which is shy, awkward. He wasn't a person who found it easy to form relationships with people. There was a kind of... Um, um, it, it there was a, a kind of almost a sort of um there was a deep he, to say he was a cold man wouldn't quite be right because underneath i think he was very passionate but on the surface he was cutting um curt impatient uh no small talk um extraordinarily um uh, aloof distant And um, I think that that was partly a kind, there was a kind of shyness to it, but also it was a, I think it was also partly a a performance. He, he was always, he was in a kind of way preparing himself to be the leader that he wanted to be. And he had developed a very sort of strong sense of uh, philosophy of leadership. The leader needs to be. To keep his distance from the crowd from other people he needs to be aloof slightly distant he must not be too familiar and so it was partly a performance but it was also part of his personality he 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 came from a family that what i mentioned earlier they, they were they were very much a a, a traditionalist catholic conservative family so they weren't the kind of milieu in which people um in which people massively express uh, they were expansive in their way they expressed their emotions but in his case it was almost um, uh, there was almost something slightly sort of peculiar about his almost incapacity to express emotion to other people and perhaps it was linked to he was a very peculiar looking man he was he was uh, I, i'm sure everybody knows that he was immensely tall after all in France, he was um, a giant. He was six foot, about six foot four, six foot five, which in the France of his period made him literally, I uh, made him like a almost like a freak, uh, and perhaps that added to that sense that he wasn't like other people. So I think that Mendes France's word that you quote, uh, timide, in the sense of shy, reserved, finding it difficult to relate to other people, is 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 a good description. Yes.
1: Could De Gaulle be described as an uh, intellectual?
0: He was, I would say, totally, uh, uh, to his absolute figurehead, he was an intellectual. I mean, he was a soldier, as so we've said, he went into the army, um, but he was a thinking soldier. He was intensely cerebral. And he was an intellectual. If you want to compare him to, to say, Winston Churchill, um, He was an intellectual in the way that Winston Churchill wasn't. Winston Churchill was a sort of magpie. You know, they both, he he read a huge amount. He had a brilliant, extraordinary memory. He knew lots of history. He knew lots of literature. But it was all very, uh, all a bit random almost in a way. De Gaulle came from, was was a sort of a, a perfect product of a very classical French education system. He knew all his classics. But he was a voracious reader, and he was really, when he wrote, I mean, let's, one example of this would be in the interwar years, as he was pursuing his his career as a soldier, um, he really made his reputation as a writer. He published four books in the interwar years. One was a book about... um, the uh the reasons why the, the germans lost the first world war and it's a very cerebral very dense short um um incisive analysis of the reasons why germany lost and his second book is an extra, uh, unbelievably cerebral and and stuffed with endless quotations from you know writers from the classical antiquity, right up to you know, modern contemporary philosophy and the French classics and so on. Um, so he is, he is uh, yes, he is an intellectual and all his life he was a um, voracious reader as well. Um, uh, so yes, I would say of literature and history in particular. And he was an intellectual in the sense that when he wrote... About history and politics, it was always at a very abstract level, in a very, um, a very, very um, dense, highly wrought style of philosophical generalisation. So yes, he was he was a he was an intellectual in uniform. I would say.
1: What was his relations with Maréchal Petain in the nineteen twenties?
0: Well. Um, Petta had been—he—it um, it, it actually so happened that his first posting, his first regiment, Petta was his um, colonel before the First World War. That wasn't just pure chance. He didn't, and Petta then wasn't the great Petta that he, he became as a result of the First World War. Um, but uh, in the interwar years, so Petta had noticed him as a obviously, you know, very able rising young soldier. And then Pétain took him into his what the French call cabinet into his sort of private office in 1925 and he took him in um for a um a, a very specific reason Pétain was Pétain was not an intellectual um, uh, he was writing um a history of the French army he was he'd been he wanted he was writing a history of the French army partly because he wanted to become a member of the uh, Académie Française, and Petter knew that he wasn't a great writer, so he knew that there was this rather up-and-coming young literary soldier, De Gaulle. So De Gaulle was drafted into his cabinet to help him write this book, which De Gaulle rather enjoyed doing. And so Petter starts out as his patron, really, entirely his sponsor and his patron. But Uh, he has a comment that he makes again and again later on that Petain or Marshall Petain died in 1925. A rather extraordinary comment because 1925 is the year that De Gaulle started to work for him. (laughs) So um, he wasn't that dead and he turned out to be a very good patron. But nonetheless, um, I think what De Gaulle meant by that was that he'd become clear to him that Petain had begun to ossify intellectually. He was a kind of prisoner of his own myth. And so their relations were, de Gaulle was um, obviously used him as a patron, but uh, had kind of seen through him in some way, if I could put it that way, that, that this man, that Petain, was a was a was um, a man intellectually limited and very vain and had become sort of obsessed with his own reputation. And then they quarreled, actually, quite badly. And they quarreled, um, because the book that Petain that Peter had be writing that the goal had been kind of ghosting for him Petain had kind of put it aside for various reasons he decided not to go ahead with it publish it and so De Gaulle decided he would publish the book under his own name but told Petain well you know since you're not going ahead I, I'd like to publish this book and that caused uh, you know, uh, basically a writer's um, uh, a, a writer's quarrel between the two of him and in the end De Gaulle went ahead, and also De Gaulle started to believe that Petain's ideas about the next war were deeply unimaginative about the war that was about to come, 1940, were unimaginative and rooted in the past, and so on. So I think what we want to say about De Gaulle is that in 1940 he was one of the few Frenchmen, and this gave him gave him a, a uniqueness actually that allowed him intellectually to kind of emancipate himself. Not to believe in, in the myth of Petain, and that, that was actually quite liberating, because even quite even um, politicians of the left, a very decent politicians like Leon Blum, uh, there was they sort of they did believe the myth, and De Gaulle was intellectually emancipated from believing the myth, so that was quite liberating, I think. So that's how I would summarise the relationship.
1: What was de Gaulle's uh, goals in writing his book on the need for a professional army in 1934?
0: Well, it was a book. It was a it was a complicated book because at um, on one level everybody thinks and rightly that it's partly a book calling for arguing that the next war is going to be different from the last one, and arguing that the war is going to be dominated by speed, uh, by tanks. Um, and that it's necessary to think how to use tanks in an offense, uh, offensively, and not just as a, an accompaniment for the infantry. That they should be, we, that you should rethink how you fight war. And he wasn't. It really would be quite wrong to say he was the only person who had these ideas. They were, they were ideas actually which quite a lot of British um, uh, writers were developing and Germans as well. So, um, but th- what De Gaulle did was to see that. Uh, what he did was to um, find a way of actually making these ideas kind of very accessible. So his wasn't a kind of technical treatise on tanks. It was a kind of plea for rethinking the army, really. But in a way, what the book's also about is to really make the French proud of their army again. It's It's almost saying that you know we're living in an increasingly pacifist um appe- appeasing society there is going to be you know war is a part of human nature um germany will want her revenge and we've got to be ready for that so i actually see the book less as a prophetic and brilliant account of what the next war will be though it, it was that but that's actually he wasn't the only person to to think that but um, a, a book really arguing that if France is to be a – continue to be a significant force in the politics of the world, she needed to rethink her defense strategy.
1: What was de Gaulle's relations in the 1930s with Paul Renaud?
0: Paul Renaud was the up and coming sort of conservative politician of the generation. And really, what happened was that Renault, who was looking for a cause, really, he was a bit, for complicated reasons, Renault's career had kind of slightly stalled because he had taken up unpopular positions on um, issues like um, economic policy and he was arguing for devaluation. So, um, Renault therefore took up the Gaulle's ideas on. That we were just talking about uh, on on military reform on tanks, and so basically what happened was that Renault became his next patron, his patron after Pétain, and that's what made it possible for De Gaulle to break with Pétain. And De uh, Gaulle was definitely hoping that through Renault, who who was very much the mouthpiece in Parliament for his political ideas, he would. um, I think by the end of the 30s de Gaulle was thinking you know that, that he, he was thinking Renault was his route to becoming minister of defence uh, to you know to being uh, to being someone who'd really take over the reorganisation of the French army so it was a mutually dependent relation it was it was in the first instance a kind of dependent relationship de Gaulle saw Renault as his as his um uh, as sort of as a conduit to um Politics actually to to rethink to becoming a a, a, a maker of the French defense policy and the dynamics between them gradually shift and De Gaulle becomes more and more the dominant personality.
1: Was there a particular? I'm sure there was date in which um, in June 1940 that De Gaulle decided to um, not um, go to North Africa like a lot of other the politicians were going, at least some of them, uh, instead decided to go to England and in essence make a break with the coming capitulation.
0: Yeah, I mean, it wasn't so much, I mean, the the truth was that no politicians actually really went to North Africa either, Though when they did, it didn't really work out. It was, yeah, there was a particular moment when basically there was a government which was headed by Renault, who was, he brought De Gaulle into his government in the last days before the final before the armistice was signed with Germany. And um, Moreno brought De Gaulle brought De Gaulle into the government. He made him a undersecretary of state for defense, which is a pretty minor post, but nonetheless, it was his first cabinet position, his first government position. And in a sense, it was very important for his future because he was always able to say he wasn't just a soldier, but he'd actually served in the last government of the Third Republic. Um, But uh, yes, it was the day when Renault, who wanted or said he wanted to take the government abroad and continue the fight, even if the army in France was defeated. And Renault was outvoted by his own government or... um, resigned because he thought he would be, and Pétain took over, and Pétain took over on the 17th of June, 1940, and his first speech, he says, I'm now going to seek the conditions of an armistice. And for de Gaulle, that was the point which he could not accept. For de Gaulle, um, although the army had been defeated, um, France, the French government, France, in some sense, must remain in the war. So on the 17th of June, Um, Having been in London the next day actually sorry in London the last the day the day before on the 17th of June He flew to London, which was an extraordinary thing to do to go into a kind of Exile in fact, um, he flew to London because he would not accept the armistice and he flew to London um, with two suitcases and uh, Nothing really um, With a view to hoping originally that other more senior French political figures would follow him and that it might be possible to create a government in exile, but when nobody did and they all basically rallied to Pétain or certainly or went to America or whatever and didn't go to London, at that point de Gaulle found that he was basically alone and to all intents and purposes, although he couldn't call himself the government because the government was Pétain, he. Forms what will become a government in exile, and the point of it is to be France in the war
1: What was uh, initially uh, Vichy's policy towards de Gaulle in June and july nineteen
0: forty um oh that's really just there's, there's not much to say it's very easy to answer and for for Vichy de Gaulle was a traitor, a deserter um he was uh, he was stripped of his rank and his title he was always called the ex general de Gaulle. Uh, they saw him as a dissident. Um, Marshal Petter uh, had signed an armistice with Germany. The war was now, well, there was an armistice. The war was going to be over. And he was a traitor. And he was indeed in, in his absence sentence to, he was court-martialed and sentenced to death. Uh, Petter always said he had never carried it out. If he had a chance but whether we don't know whether that's true or not but so no he was quite simple vichy but on the other vichy very really mentioned him because the danger of mentioning him was to build him up so they although he was technically ex-general de Gaulle, a deserter a dissident and a traitor because he had disobeyed as both as a soldier and as a citizen the marshal of france peter um he was a, a non person really. He was, um, he was the enemy. But they didn't, uh, I would say, they didn't make a lot of him because they didn't want to actually give him any, any particular significance. He was just, as it were, um, uh, he was cast into outer darkness, really.
1: On page 143, you write that whether or not uh, to join De Gaulle in 1940 was, quote, more about instinct than calculation, unquote. Can you elaborate on that?
0: Yeah, I th- what I mean by that is that um, you know, De Gaulle, as we've said a bit earlier, De Gaulle was a was a, was a quite strange person. Um, he wasn't somebody a lot of people when they first found as sympathetic. But um, you just think, you're you're a Frenchman in London because there were Fre- there, you know, there were French people in London in 1940 who'd ended up there after Dunkirk, or who were in the French embassy in London, or who decided they wanted to get away from what from Vichy France and then there's this man saying i'm the leader of the free french and you've got to think it it's, it sounds almost a bit crazy this is a man as i said a moment ago he's he's he arrived with two suitcases he's he is a general uh we didn't mention before he he's just been appointed general so he's the most junior general in the french army um who uh sort of is has almost declared himself to be france <laughs> um and so it's an act of faith, really, to believe that um, so Frenchmen who wanted to go on fighting, who wanted to do something, there might have been other ways of doing it. Um, the famous French um, economist financier Jean Monnet um, went to uh, went to America. He thought, you know, that's the place we've got to go to to work on the Roosevelt administration. Um, he thought that London, you know, wasn't the place to be. And other Frenchmen who wanted to go on doing something thought, well, perhaps we should work with the British, perhaps we should actually fight with the British army and so on. So in a way, what the goal was, he had nothing much to offer at the beginning. He was just who he was. Uh, the only thing he had to offer is is Churchill had, on a whim almost, uh, ex- recognized him as the leader of the Free French. But for a lot of people who then have sort of presented themselves to the goal, um, it was really... An act of—I don't know what to say that you read a quotation from my own book when I said act of faith or impulse, but it was an act of—it was a sort of um, a gamble. Is this? Because uh, a lot of these people at first thought he was pretty odd. Um, some some were uh, impressed by the obvious extraordinary force of personality, of will, the sheer will and the sheer and the courage actually uh, that it involved, that, that his choice had involved. So some people were seduced by that. Other people were seduced by the lucidity of his analysis of the situation. Because the first speech he made from London, his analysis of the war was the war, the Battle of France has been lost, but that's just the first battle in what will be a world war. The Americans, the British will have behind them. The Allies have behind them the whole weight of their empires, of American industrial power. And so on, and, and to, in private he was saying, and probably the, the Russians will come in on the Allied side in due course. So he had this extraordinary um, lucidity, prophetic lucidity, intelligence. His reading of the situation was um, was uh, stunning. In retrospect, he, he turned out to be right, in a sense, if put it that way. Um, so there were reasons you could be persuaded by him intellectually. You could. Think, well, there's nothing else, else to do. He's the only person on offer. Um, but somewhere in it all, I think there was a feeling that it was a it was a, um, an almost like an instinctive. It was a, 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 a gamble. Of, you know, this 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 man is odd. There's something rather impressive about his force of personality and will. And in the end, it came from. It it, it was as much uh, a a moral and and instinctive decision to join him as it was an intellectual and a rational one.
1: Why did the British not uh, get rid of de Gaulle after the debacle at Dakar in
0: 1940? They could well have done. Um, I think at that stage, I mean, that's the expedition that was sent to rally the French West Africa to the free French which failed because the Vichy forces fired on on de Gaulle um, they could have been tempted I think they 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 didn't they remained loyal to him because in a way um, uh, well partly it was Churchill Churchill felt that um, he made this Commitment that he was going to recognise de Gaulle as the leader of the Free French. He felt a certain, obviously at the beginning in particular, a kind of almost a romantic admiration for this 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 figure. Um, So it was partly Churchill. I've said I'm going to back him as leader of the Free French, and I'm going to back him as leader of the Free French. So, um, but what I think is important is that after Dakar, although they continued to support um, and back de Gaulle they do start to slightly recalibrate their relationship to Vichy. And so the Foreign Office starts to think, well, um, okay, we'll support, um, You know, do, Churchill wants to support the goal, but let's see if we can find some channels of working with Vichy and so on. So they're always kind of playing on two registers and that was accentuated by Dakar. Is it better to work with Vichy and try to bring Vichy into the allied camp or is it better to, Attack Vichy. They tried to tone down De Gaulle's attacks on Vichy after Dakar.
1: How important was uh, Jean Moulin to De Gaulle?
0: Uh, He becomes the uh, very important. I mean, Moulin was, but really up to 1941, 42, De Gaulle didn't really know much about what was going on with the, the. the emerging resistance in France. He didn't really um, have any. Uh, it was very difficult to know what was going on. He had agents were being parachuted into France, but they didn't really know. And then they didn't really know what to do with this resistance. And when Moulin arrived in London, he arrived in London with a plan, with a with a, a strategy. He he said, "Well, look, there are these groups developing." He arrived in in October 1941. There are these groups emerging in France, and if you don't organise them, or if somebody doesn't organise them, they will either fall under the influence of communists, or they will just be a kind of unorganised, ramshackle, almost sort of semi-anarchic force. So he offered the goal. He basically said, you know, you want representative in France, you're parachuting people in, but actually you've got hundreds of people, parachutists already in place. They're there. What you need to do is to use them. So he gave the goal a strategy for using the resistance and then was sent back to France to apply that strategy. And because he was a man of extraordinary um, mixture of, you know, vision, toughness, persuasiveness, um, he was able to pull together these quite Disparate groups who were often quite uh, jealous of each other and to bring them under the sort of banner of de Gaulle. And there were lots and lots and lots of um, um, quarrels. So, really, Moulin was vital to de Gaulle's. He really gave him a, a, a plan for what to do with the resistance. Of course, if Moulin if hadn't been Moulin, probably someone else would have emerged, but Moulin was. Uh, Because he had been previously a prefect, he was a senior administrator, and so he was someone with whom de Gaulle felt a great affinity. And so I think his role in harnessing the resistance to de Gaulle was very, very important and gave de Gaulle enormous um, bargaining power later in his relationship with um, Roosevelt and Churchill.
1: What was De Gaulle's uh, relation or view of the post-liberation, what is called in French, purges
0: of the purges? He, what he wanted was you know, at, at times during the war, De Gaulle had started to talk um, in a quite revolutionary terms. You know, he talked about the need for a national insurrection. Um, uh, he talked of um, you know, the need for a kind of, he used the word revolution quite a lot. And he was partly doing this to win over the resistance, partly doing it to undercut the attraction of the communists. There were lots of reasons for it, but he kind of, as the liberation gets closer, he starts to slightly backtrack because what he wants to avoid is a blood, well, he wants to avoid anarchy. He wants order in post-war France because in his view, that if there's anarchy, this might be a pretext for the Americans and British to set up their own kind of you know, military government in France. So he's obsessed with the idea of um, he wants things to come back. He wants order to be reestablished. He doesn't want there to be a kind of vacuum. And so although he's very clear that those people who have um, egregiously collaborated need to be punished. The process must be done um, in an orderly fashion by special courts set up rather than by kind of popular lynchings, because that's the kind of anarchy he disliked. And also um, that you it had to be limited because he was very cynical, and, but he was right. And he knew that actually there were very few French people who hadn't in some ways implicated themselves in collaboration with the Vichy regime and with the Germans. So, and he said quite explicitly to one of his followers, le- more left-wing followers in London, Georges Boris, he said, you know, most French were pettanists, and we've got to work with them. After the war, if we're going to rebuild France. If we don't use some of these people, we won't have anybody to use. So he felt that the most, um, uh, obviously, people who'd most, as it were, blotted their copybook needed to be punished and this had for symbolic reasons as much as anything else but he definitely wanted he wasn't actually bloodthirsty he was he was implacable but he wasn't a sanguinary individual he didn't he he didn't uh, he actually found it when he had to decide whether to pardon people or not he found it if something he took very very seriously whether or not to do it so he wanted it done in order he felt it had to be done i want to say in an orderly fashion. By the state. There had to be some purges, but they mustn't get out of control, and pragmatically, you had to use people who had compromised with Vichy, or you wouldn't be able to build up the French administration again.
1: Why did de Gaulle resign as the Premier in January
0: 1946? Well, he he was back, so he came back, he was head of a provisional government, there were elections, Parliament was elected. And it was very clear to him that the parliament that was elected was going to set up a constitutional system that he found that was against everything he believed in. Um, He believed in um, strong, well, he had developed ideas that one of the problems with France in 1940 had been the weakness of her constitution, the weakness of the president. He had a famous phrase about the president in 1940. He said, um, he, the head of state, he said he, he, Lebrun was head of state, but he was no head and there was no state. So he believed that France needed, as I said in almost the first question you asked, a, a strong state. He believed they were going down a completely wrong path of a much weaker executive system, a much weaker, sorry, system with a weak executive, um, a parliament that could basically sort of. Pull down government, bring down governments at a, at a whim. <coughs> so he felt he could not work with that. And they were going the wrong way. And I think <coughs> if he resigned, he resigned because he hoped they'd be so traumatized by his resignation, they'd bring him back to power. And then he could set up the kind of constitutional system he preferred. But unfortunately, they were only too relieved when he actually <laughs> stood down. And he famously sort of stood at the window one day, saying, "Looking, where are the crowds calling for me to come back?" And there were no crowds calling for him to come back. And um, so, what had been a, um, a a sort of tactical decision uh, backfired, and he found himself out of power for twelve years. But he would have been incapable of working with the Parliament in that system, because he was opposed to. It was entirely against his personality and his beliefs uh, in the need for a strong presidential authority.
1: What did de Gaulle mean or not mean by his famous statement in Algeria in 1958? I'm sure I'm mispronouncing it. Je vous a compris.
0: Yeah, well, that's, that's one of the sort of really famous uh, phrases he uttered. So when he comes back to power in 58, he comes back to power. Um, as a result of of effectively a kind of coup d'etat, a sort of military uh, coup d'etat in France, in in Algiers, where the army in France is in Algiers. The French army is very worried that the politicians are going to give Algeria independence. And so are the Europeans in Algeria. They think that the French government is going to sell them out. So the goal becomes seen by these people as a kind of saviour. But the goal probably saw the writing on the wall already. That's to say, probably saw that Algeria would have to become independent. Um, that to resist Algerian independence was simply futile. Whatever he probably did see that. So when he made this famous comment, "Je vous ai compris," I have understood you. It was um, a piece of unbelievably brilliant. Um, Masterful ambiguity, really, because everybody—he arrived in Algiers after taking power again in 1958 in June. This huge crowd, expectantly waiting, cheering, massive crowd, mainly of people who believe in French Algeria, calling out his name. And so when he says "Je vous ai compris," I have understood them. i sorry, I have understood you. They could all think he'd understood them, but they could all think that he'd understood what they wanted but nobody but actually if you think about it he hadn't said anything he just said i've understood you it could it could be it could mean i've understood what you want but unfortunately there's not a chance you're going to get it or it could have meant i've understood you and i'm on your side it was a piece of superb um gnomic ambiguity to not give any hostages to fortune to anybody and then of course they become very very uh, disappointed when they realize when in fact he ends up introducing um, uh, policies of which lead eventually to Algerian independence. But so they've been duped, actually, they feel by this piece of studied ambiguity.
1: In his uh, book on uh, com- comparative history of uh, Anglo-French decolonization in the 50s and 60s, Martin Thomas um, uh, posits that there is a, I wouldn't describe it as racist so much as racialist aspect to de Gaulle's willingness to let Algeria become independent. Would you agree with that?
0: Yeah, no, I, I say that explicitly. I actually didn't know he'd said that in the book. I know his book, um, and I say exactly the same. I totally, I see exactly what uh, is being said. What that, what, what that means is that um, if you think about it the 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 idea of people some people who believed in um French Algeria some of the more uh, idealistic ones was that uh they had this as uh, I idealistic idea that um Algeria could become fully part of France that all the Algerian all the 9 million Muslim um, North African population would become full French citizens Integrated into France, it's what they called the, the term they used was integration, and um, and that's a very noble idea at one level. Uh, though the truth was that many of the whites in Algeria w- said they 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 wouldn't have really wanted that, but um, it was an idea. It was the idea. It was the noble side of the idea of Algerie Française, French Algeria, and so although at one level we could see de Gaulle as a progressive in the sense that he accepted Algerian or was forced to accept Algerian independence. Actually, he accepts Algerian independence because he has no truck with this idea of the Algerians as becoming integrated, nine million Algerians becoming integrated to France. And that's what I'm. that's the racist side. He he made this famous comment I quote in the book, it's been now often quoted, um to one of his, um, in, in private, but he sort of said, Can you imagine if we, we had French Algeria, 9 million, Al- 9 million Algerians breeding faster than we do, um, in 50 years' time, my village, and he lived in a village called Colombe des Églises, Colombe of, of the two churches, will be Colombe the two mosques. In other words, we'll be overrun by these people. So, in that sense, yes, there was, you could say, there was a kind of cynical racism almost to it so what seems like a progressive and and certainly he was admired by many people on the left for his position that Algeria should become independent it was tend to be the right who opposed him nonetheless his reasons for it uh, there is uh, you could see it as a kind of um, cynical conservative and underneath it a, a sort of racism I think that's absolutely the case yeah
1: why did he regularly meet in the uh, '60s with the Pretender, the Comte de Paris?
0: Yes, I wouldn't want to make too. much. I mean, I I, I talked about that in my book because I I found those conversations um,
1: illuminating, quite
0: amusing. Uh, yeah, well, I found them. I thought they were intriguing and um, and sometimes quite amusing. And he plays the Comte de, uh, the Comte de Paris, as you as you say, is the Pretender of the French throne, and there hasn't been a French king since um 1848 and uh, so you know this this is this is no longer practical politics and i think that he he's he i think that you know honestly somewhere at the back of his mind the goal was nostalgic for that old france but he we've got to realize that the goal was a utterly pragmatic and quite modernizing conservative he knew perfectly well that France was not going to become a monarchy again, but there's a little bit of nostalgia there for for um, yeah, and uh, there's a bit of teasing going on. I think he quite liked to. to uh, I think he was almost sort of playing with the pretender, but also he did genuinely see the pretender as the representative of that royal family that had made France what she was, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So that it is it, good. It's very complicated sort of motives. And in the end, it, I, I do think he was just playing with him. But of course, what he often said, and this he did say publicly, was that was what he had created was a republican monarchy. So uh, he knew perfectly well you couldn't go back to the monarchy. He did know that. Um, he did um, believe that the style of, that, that in a sort of way that, that, that France, there was something in France that was nostalgic for the monarchy, for monarch- monarchical authority and so on. And so he quite explicitly said, I have created a um, um, uh, monarchie républicaine, a republican monarchy. And he behaved like a monarch, uh, but a republican, an elected monarch. I mean, he was elected. So, I, I, although I, I, you know, I don't want to put too much emphasis on those meetings, but I think they tell you something about the gold sensibility, even if they aren't practical politics, But the meetings you refer to
1: were were the the events of May 1968 evidence of the failure of the gaullist modernization uh, project or per contra evidence in a sort of a strange way of its success
0: yeah i think i think that's a very good question and i think it's uh i would actually say um uh, that the the latter that they are a kind of way <clears throat> evidence of its success, the 68 was a kind of crisis of modernization. It was, um, France had changed socially massively as a result of the huge economic changes that have been taking place in France since the second world war, but particularly since the 1960s. And they weren't changes that the goal, you know, personally necessarily, um, uh implemented but he, he he approved them because he saw that you know economic change was necessary for political power so he was not against these changes but they were therefore making a very very different France of um and politically it was uh the France that he was running was 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 out of sync you could say with these social changes of this massively expanding younger generation that no longer Believed in the very conservative family values of the Gold Generation. They were not Catholic. The Gold was Catholic. They didn't. They 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 um, were. I might say more hedonistic. They were, in some sense, products of the consumer society and all that sort of thing. So yes, it was a um, it was a, a result of a it was a kind of unpredicted result of the modernization that had been taking place. And a lot of people say, oh, isn't this a sign of the goal was the goal's failure that he was out of that this happened to which my answer would be, well, I mean, he was by then 79 years old. He'd been president for 10 years and it's not surprising that this old conservative traditionalist figure modern in so many ways couldn't really understand that movement. And of course another way of framing your question might have been was 68 a result of the rather um, authoritarian style of government that the goal had created so it becomes very difficult in the fifth republic to express protest because it's such a so dominated by the position of the goal and so in some sense he was also a victim of that if if you don't allow or you you kind of turn off the usual acts that allow um, people to express. I mean, let's not exaggerate. It wasn't a dictatorship. It was a democratic regime. He was elected, and there were lectures, et cetera, et cetera. There was a free press. There was, but nonetheless, it was a stifling regime. A lot of young people felt, and so '68 was was an explosion of that. that that reflected that sense that the young were no longer able, willing, as it were, to be told by this old man, who could be their grandfather or their great-grandfather, how they should live.
1: What do you think really occurred on the 29th of May, 1968?
0: Well, that's the the famous day when um, uh, the goal suddenly disappears from Paris for the day, and no one knows he's gone. Even his own prime minister doesn't know he's gone. And he secretly goes by helicopter to visit the general in command of the French troops in in Germany, stationed in Germany, Baden-Baden. And um, it's I, I talk about this a lot in the book. And in the end, I, I I don't think anyone quite knows. At one level, he clearly went to see the army. The leader of the army, General Massu, to see whether if this extraordinary popular movement that was 1968 became uh, a, 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 an attempt to, to, to topple the regime, to see if the army would be loyal. At one level, that's clearly what it was about. He was checking up to see whether he could rely on the army. But I think it was a mixture. I think that there was an element that he was possibly wondering whether he should go on. I mean, there was he was in a state of... He hadn't slept for at least, well, he'd hardly slept for for two and a half weeks, holed up in the Elysee with this completely, this 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 movement of popular protest that nobody seemed to be able to control or know where it was going to go. And he was, he was a man of very volatile moods. So he would go from, um, he, rather like Churchill, who had these famous, what, Churchill used to call his black dog moods when he'd go into deep depression. And I think some figures like some figures like the and Churchill go are very can be they, they almost their energy comes from the sort of this spring from the despair into which they fall. So he was in a mood of total uh, deep depression on the twenty ninth, but. Uh, n- he also was one of those people who, who was always quite a play actor, so was he as depressed as he said he was, was he just trying people, he sort of almost trying it on, that he would say, you know, it's all, it's all over, I'm giving up, can't go on any longer, and then was he actually waiting for somebody to say, oh, of course you can, the goal doesn't give up, and so on. So it's a very complicated moment where I think his mood was fluctuating from moment to moment, and I think he he could um, it's not inconceivable he would have resigned in on that Uh, after that day but that seemed to buck him up he realized the army would back him and suddenly the mood changed and turned and um, i don't think he sort of planned it in that way but almost the shock of his disappearance and the fact that people were getting fed up with the students rather than getting fed up with the with the gilets jaunes in france today Hmm. public mood had changed and so i think the did that at just the right moment, even if he ne- hadn't necessarily planned that.
1: 48 years after his death, what do you think de Gaulle's chief political legacy?
0: Uh, I think, if let's say political, I mean, I, you know, that's or, different. Or just
1: merely what, legacy.
0: Yeah, no, no, legacy, obviously I think there are an extraordinary series of achievements, but I think his legacy, uh, one I think is to is to give a new, um, he, he uh, one perhaps less important is a is a, a new inflection to French foreign policy, uh, to um, which you could say is not a legacy in the sense that not many not it's not necessarily a, a dominant feature in French politics today. But if the French didn't, for example, go into the Iraq War with the British behind um, President Bush in two thousand and two, it was partly sort of because of the legacy of the goals attempt to distance france from america but i think the real political legacy is the fifth republic which is there today which has been there for 60 years and is um the regime that i think for all its faults you know at the moment people are quite aware of its faults because of the violence going on in france macron's having the difficulty we just mentioned the the, the yellow vest, the gilets jaune movement, and so on. But in the end, it's the first political constitution France has had since the French Revolution, which basically has a consensus around it. There's obviously lots of dissent in France at different times, there's moments, there's lots of um, opposition to Macron and so on. But Macron is operating in a political system that was created by the goal. And what makes Macron able to... Um, exercise the power that he does and to be actually the most um, powerful political leader in Western Europe um, because, and indeed North America as a domestically because the Constitution gives him huge power. And it's um, a Constitution which for all its faults, obviously it has faults, all constitutions have faults, um, I think has really developed a consensus around it. I think the French. And there's sometimes people talk about, oh, we need a fifth, we need a new constitution. We do sixth republic. We need more power to parliament. You get these people saying this from time to time. But in the end, I think the French do, for the first time, think that for all its faults, this regime is the regime that they believe in. They vote very in large numbers in the presidential election. So I think to create a consensus around France's um, political institutions, for the first time really since the French Revolution, is um, uh, the legacy. I think it's an outstanding legacy. I'm not saying it's the best system that could be, but is there any system that's perfect? Is the American system perfect? Is the British system perfect? Is the Italian system, German system? No system is perfect. But this is, a, this is a system which has done the French pretty well for the last 60 years and which has really achieved a consensus. So I'm not sort of arguing that, oh, the goal is the answer to all the problems of French history. But I think that is a considerable legacy in a country which had traditionally a very divided um, political culture.
1: If you wanted people to take one thing away from uh, your book, what would it be?
0: I don't think there is one thing. <laughs> it's a long book. Um, as I'm sure you know, it's 900 pages almost. And I don't think I want them to... I think they want them to take away... I, mean, I, I think... Uh, I hope they enjoy it. I tried to make it readable. And it seems to have been much enjoyed by people. It's I'm a lot of success in the United Kingdom in terms of reviews and sales. And it's coming out in France next year, this year. Um, but I think to... Um, I think I really would want them to take away that this is an extraordinarily complicated. he is an extraordinarily uh complicated uh figure who is a who is really one I mean I do think one of the, the, the um I, I didn't write it in a kind of hagiographical spirit. I don't think you know, I think there's lots wrong with him. There's lots I don't find attractive about him. But I think he's an extraordinary um an extraordinary political leader, such as really the 20th century has hardly seen any examples of in any country. That mixture, of all the things we've been talking about—the this you know, showmanship, cerebr- cerebrality—if that's the word, intelligence, pragmatism—and um, so I think what I want to take away is: this is a quite extraordinary. He is a quite extraordinary man. And that the reason the book needs to be so long is that just when you think you've understood him, you realize you haven't understood him because he's always more complicated than you had thought he was going to be. And he's always one step ahead of you. You think you're going to you say this about him. You think you've got to the end, as it were. You've explained him. And then you realize that actually he's a step ahead of you already. So I think that's what I want to bring out, that he is extraordinary and that he merits um that his life was a kind of a Napoleon said, you know, what a a, a novel, quel roman, que ma vie, what a, what a sort of like a romantic novel my life has been. Uh, and I think about the goal, you could say that it's an extraordinary life and he's an extraordinary figure.
1: Professor Jackson, I would like to thank you very much for being so kind as to speak with us today. This is Charles Cotillo. Thanks for listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thank you, Professor.
0: Thank you very much. Thank you.